Deep in the weeds of agency management, you can find something called the FATARA scorecard. FATARA stands for Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act. It became law in 2015. And twice each year, agencies receive from Congress a scorecard on how they did managing their IT activities. Now a team under the IT trade group ACT-IAC has come up with a list of recommendations for revising the FATARA scorecard. Here with the whys and wherefores, former federal CIO Alan Baloudis. Alan, good to have you in the studio. Thank you. And the executive director of the Policy Center at MITRE Corporation and former GAOer, Dave Pounder. Dave, good to have you in. Great to be here, Tom. A little bit of background. The FATARA scorecard, where does it come from and do agencies really believe in it? Well, Tom, starting off, you know, FATAR was passed in December 2014, and following the passage of that law, there were scorecards provided initially in four areas associated with aspects of that law. So, for instance, areas like data center consolidation, where we consolidating centers and saving money. Uh, Originally, Congress started with four categories. It kind of ballooned now to about eight categories. But consistently, every six months for the last eight years, four congressional sessions, there's been a scorecard in place. And I will say early, there were great benefits to the scorecard in terms of cost savings, you know, going to more incremental development instead of, you know, big waterfall approaches. And what happened is from scorecards 8 through 15, there really weren't a lot of changes. So what ACT IAC decided to do, we had a great team that was led by Dave Wenegren, Richard Spires, Al and I were able to participate in that. But we had a lot of other ex-CIOs, a really top-notch group, that recommended how we should evolve this scorecard sure. so that we could continue to focus on things that matter, cyber, cloud migration, workforce, those types of categories. And, Alan, do you get the sense that the scorecards – actually affected agency activities, or was this one of those things where you can't fatten a pig by weighing it? Well, it's a troubled analogy, uh, but yeah, I think it's made a considerable difference, and everybody, I think, agrees with that. CIO Council, OMB, GAO, members of the Hill, and of course, there's been a revolving leadership on the Republican side, but I think it's time to evolve that card after eight years and 15 report cards. As we've advanced and accomplished, now we want to step up the ante a little bit and uh, advance the ball even further. Yeah, what has changed in the IT environment, do you think, that would prompt a change in what is measured and scored and reported on? Because you mentioned cloud, workforce, cybersecurity. Those are still very much extant. Yeah, those areas have always been around, Tom. But if you look at cyber, for instance, if you look at the current administration with their executive order, the zero trust strategy that's in place, now the national cybersecurity strategy, you know, we had metrics to measure cyber, but those metrics do need to change if we look at like the tenants of zero trust, multi-factor authentication, endpoint detection, those types of things. So again, when you look at what we're proposing here, there's one new category. There's a workforce category that has never been on the scorecard we think it should be, and I know Alan has a lot of ideas about how that should evolve. The network category on EIS, we're proposing that that stays. And then there's six categories. We're By just, EIS, you mean the enterprise, yeah. Right, the it, contract from GSA the, the contract that about half GSA. the company, yes. half government is actually bought into yet. Exactly. And that's why it was put on the scorecard to grade it so that we get more folks moving towards that government-wide contract. So that one we're proposing stays. And then the other six categories are really like an evolution of what's already there. So cyber was already there, and we're just proposing new metrics on cyber. 
And just briefly, the workforce issue then, what is uh, crucial there? Well, I think just a week or so ago, Tom, you had uh, Gene Dodaro, Comptroller General, head of GAO, on your show. And as you know, in the high-risk list, human capital planning and management has been on the list since the very inception. And now, as you look at the remaining issues on the list, half of them have human resources as a key component, program management, cybersecurity, et cetera. Now, if you came in to head a new company and they said, we have this longstanding problem for 20 years that's been our major issue, and it's the major contributor of half of our other big challenges, wouldn't you want to take that on. It's a difficult issue. The metrics have been a little hard to measure, but it's such a critical path matter, and it would drive so much success and progress in other areas if you were to succeed there. All of that argues for putting it on the top and making it a major priority. We're speaking with Alan Balutis. He's former federal CIO and man about the industry for many years after that. And with Dave Pounder, executive director of the Policy Center at MITRE Corporation. And you have worked up a prototype Fatara scorecard and actually tested it at two agencies. They wish to remain anonymous for this. But tell us more about that methodology. Yeah, so the key to the scorecard, Tom, is is the data available and does the methodology make sense? So what we did is we had two agencies that signed up, and those were really the two questions that we wanted to answer. Is the data available to apply our scoring methodology, and does the scoring methodology make sense? And to cut to the chase on what those two agencies told us, most of this data is readily available to provide a score, and they did uh, where they were able to self-score so the methodology made sense. There were some tweaks they had that were very helpful that we plan on incorporating into the methodology that we currently have. And the other thing we're doing, too, in addition to piloting is, you know, we're running this past GAO, federal CIO's office, as well as congressional staff on the Hill to make sure that this all makes sense and this is where they want to go. And all of those have been receptive You didn't hatch this in secret and sort of plop it onto the world. They've all been involved, these different stakeholders, to use the modern parlance. Indeed. And I wanted to just ask one detail question of your recommendations. CIO authority, and that's an issue that has been bedeviling since there have been CIOs. I think there's been two or three laws, Alan, in in our history of following this. What do you mean there? How would you change that in relation to the scorecard? Well, as you know, Tom, one of the challenges from the very beginning after Klinger Cohen was enacted, Senator Cohen went off to become Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration, and Congressman Klinger retired. So there was no one to actually follow up. There was a uh, mixed implementation of the act initially. And so CIOs never were granted some of the authorities that are essential to carry out that role, authority over the IT budget, authority over procurement, so you could see what's being acquired. And CIOs have struggled with that. So, again, we view that as a critical path issue, giving them authorities, and then, of course, seeing that they actually use that authority, because we've seen recently a report from the Department of Veterans Affairs where they weren't reviewing many of the key IT procurements in the department. Both are essential, having the authority and using that authority to carry through the job. And Tom, specifically on that topic, if you look at the scorecard today, 
the CIO authority has one category that they use to evaluate it. Do they report to the agency head, as Alan said, that's required back to Clinger Cohen? Sure. And they get a plus or a minus on their grade. What we're proposing is there's three areas that we focus on. Do they report appropriately? Are they involved with the budgeting and spend process? And are they also involved with the procurement process? So you break that into like three categories. And we think to Alan's point that that's really where we need to focus to make sure they are involved with all those key areas. Yeah, to put the C in CIO, you might say. Correct. And Dave, another question, and Alan, you can jump in on this one also, and that is, and I'm asking based on your experience at GAO, where you would have looked at a agency or a program or some type of a federal initiative over time. And if the scorecard changes, does it matter that the scores may not be comparable over the long history of them, 15 and counting? Or is that really not so important? And what really matters is what they're doing right now with what is current. To be honest, I don't think the actual grade or scores matter. Are we getting progress in terms of outcomes? So if you look at data center consolidation, we saved billions. Incremental development, we went to a more incremental approach over time. Do we need to get better cloud adoption plans in place and actually execution against those plans? Do we need to be in the cloud more? Yes. So that's one of the areas that we propose. Do we need to move our cyber approach more towards a zero trust approach that's currently required in policy coming out of OMB? Yes, we need to do those things. So really, the grades are there, but it's really the outcomes. And to be honest with you, what we're proposing on the evolution of the scorecards, right now everyone's getting a C or higher. And if you look collectively at everything the agencies have to do, workforce, cyber, cloud adoption, the legacy challenges we have, do we really think everyone is doing A's and B's in all these areas? Agencies themselves would probably tell you no. So I think this evolution where we look at new categories, push agencies to do things. And I will say, not that you want to give D's and F's, but when agencies got D's and F's, top management paid attention, and there was focus on these things. And you used the phrase, I think, report card when you started this interview. You'd continue that analogy. As you advance in your performance, the curriculum gets a little tougher, the scoring gets a little more intense, and you step up the ante in terms of your progress. And that makes sense in this arena as well. Sure. Okay. One pre-final question, and that is, it sounds like you envision really for the long term a card that continuously changes to reflect changes in technology and reflect changes in the real challenges that the government is facing at a given moment. I think it should clearly change over time. You need to be fair to the agencies and give them a heads up. One of the things that the committee's done that I think has really been great is when they were going to change something, they would preview it, the scorecard prior. So agencies would really have almost a full year to know that it's coming. But as an example, like with the cyber categories that we proposed, this aligns with the current administration's policies, you know, patching, multi-factor authentication. But, for instance, like quantum cryptography, is not in our methodology. Does that need to be down the road? Absolutely. That's a big deal. So this is always going to evolve over time, Tom. Technologies change and evolve. And of course, member interests change and evolve. We've had some consistency in membership on Democratic side with Congressman Connolly. But as you know, the Republican side, we've had several members. They've come in with different interests, different focus. And it's not unreasonable to expect 
that to change on the legislative side as well as the leadership within the administration. And you have shared this with the administration, with, as you say, staff members and members of Congress and the industry and some of the agencies have seen it, have been part of it. What happens next? How does it happen? Well, I think that's the key question, Tom. You know, what will happen with Scorecard 16, you know, the fifth congressional session? What I would say is clearly there's a focus on cyber. Cyber is going to be front and center. Again, we want to push the workforce category. We proposed eight categories. Do you need to do all eight? Not necessarily. You could do a handful of those, but I think it needs to be targeted on priority areas like workforce, like cyber. Legacy modernization is a big one that you could weave in the cloud adoption suggestions that we have. So we'll see what happens, but you know, over the next couple months as the next scorecard gets rolled out. Alan, any final thoughts? The Hill has a lot on their plate right now. Your station is reporting on some of those key issues, but as soon as we get those resolved, I think we'll get back to normal business and, and see some progress on the report card. Alan Balutis is a former federal CIO, has been consulting and involved in the industry for a long time. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And Dave Pounder is executive director of the Policy Center at Mitre Corporation, former employee of GAO, have also looked at this stuff for decades. Great to have you in. Thanks, Tom. And, of course, you've been with us for decades, too, Tom. So <laughs> Yes, we're all getting gray together here. <laughs> but in the meantime, we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. 
I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or 
maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.